Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, that's me, ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. When you're an American Express Platinum Card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, Chef, what course are we on? I've, I've lost count. Or, shoot that, shoot that! And even... Checkout's not until 4, so... Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. June's Journey is a fascinating hidden object mystery gaming app where you'll play as June Parker, Tasked with a daunting obligation, solve your sister's murder. Set in the 1920s, the era of glitz and glam, this family mystery is one for the ages. Everyone's a suspect until your investigation determines otherwise. The clues are all around you, hidden within tricky twists and turns. You'll collect detailed information about each character in your photo album where you'll comb over every detail. You can even join a detective's club to chat and play with others or against them in the detective's league. With hundreds of puzzles to solve, you should probably get started today. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. And it needs to say, I'm a thoughtful person. And I appreciate you. And I know exactly what you like. All at the same time. Relax. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life, like the pickleballer, the jazz fan, the zen seeker, the artist, or the pasta lover. From 90s nostalgia and mixology to reality TV and gaming, there's something for everyone on Etsy. A gifting moment is always around the corner. Whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you, Gift Mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Gift easy with Gift Mode on Etsy. We all have busy lives these days, and we don't want to waste a day recovering after a night out. That's why Zbiotics is the answer we've all been looking for. Their probiotic was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Pre-alcohol produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. This is a proactive solution that wards off feeling miserable the next day instead of a reactive approach like drinking electrolytes or eating greasy food. Enhance your mornings 
with ZBiotics. Go to zbiotics.com slash CBS to get 15% off your first order when you use code CBS at checkout. ZBiotics is backed with a 100% money back guarantee. So if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money. No questions asked. Remember to head to zbiotics.com slash CBS and use the code CBS at checkout for 15% off. Thank you, ZBiotics, for sponsoring this episode and our good times. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here, and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London. You just never know. This week, we come to you from Maui in Hawaii at the Royal Lahaina. My next guest is a walking history. He's a walking historian. His family goes back to the turn of the last century and, uh, uh, and, and has seen all the changes that have happened, especially here in Maui. Uh, his name is George Freeland, but everybody calls him Kiyoki. Welcome, sir. Thank you. I mean, one of the things that I remember always seeing every time I got out of the airport here was the sugar mill with the steam coming out of the stacks. That steam is no longer coming out. That mill is closed. In fact, there's not a single operating sugar mill in the state of Hawaii now, right? That's correct. When did that happen and why? Well, the final sugar mill shut down this past December uh, 2016. But uh, when I got out of college, I went into the sugar industry, and this was in the early 1960s. At that time, there were 23 sugar plantations throughout the state. And you worked at almost all of them, right? (laughs) No, I I worked in in seven of them, primarily through a training program. But I worked permanently at Oahu Sugar on... uh, right outside of Pearl Harbor and Pioneer Mill right here in Lahaina. But in, in, in just in terms of the, the actual location, there's just so much history here. There's so many things that you can do just if you walk around. Oh, yeah. First of all, I'd like to point out that uh, Lahaina has gone through several eras in time. Uh, first of all, there was a pre-contact period when only the natives lived here and the white men didn't show up until 1778 when Captain Cook showed up. Uh, then there was a period of the monarchy, when King Kamehameha I uh, unified the islands after he conquered most of the different uh, tribes. Uh, this was in 1802. So the period of the monarchy uh, went on until 1893, which was the overthrow of the monarchy by primarily uh, businessmen and plantation business people. Uh, and, and it was not a, a violent overthrow as such, but the royalty lost their position. Now, there's also the missionary period. The mission, Lahaina has got a whole bunch of first things. And uh, uh, for instance, uh, the reason why this happened is because the whalers came to Hawaii around the horn and whaled up in the Aleutians and came to Hawaii. 
And this happened before people went across the continent of the United States. So as a result, there's all kinds of first things that you'll find right here in Lahaina. And it's all about finding them and then telling those stories and making them relevant mm-hmm. to, what, to what you're seeing today. Of all the changes that you've seen, being on this, what's the most significant one for you that, that you've seen? It's, it's the, the tourist era. Uh, I grew up in a period of time known as a plantation era. And uh, changing from that to the tourist area is tremendous. For instance, Kaunapali here, my first summer job was to plant coconut trees out here. Kaunapali did not have a single coconut tree when I first came to this plot of land. But look at it. You've got all kinds of coconut trees, but look at the hotels. Uh, Do they call them Kioki coconuts now? No, no. I'm, I'm no. just double-checking. I didn't no. know. <laughs> no, I, I was just one of the, the guys out there. And, you know... We did this with, with cranes, backhoes, bulldozers, and uh, low boys. We, we brought trees from all over the island and stuck them in the ground over here. But what you're saying is the real change was the tourist issue. That's yeah. correct. That's correct. To this day. Yeah, very much so. I mean, it's changed the economy. Oh, yeah. It went from agriculture to tourism. Very much so. And, but it's also crowding this island up tremendously. We've got all kinds of traffic problems that uh, you know, I grew up uh, going from Lahaina to Kahului, and uh, at that period of time, I'm talking when I was a little boy, uh, we'd pass maybe 25 cars going the opposite direction. Now you do that in two minutes. Uh, but that's, that's a huge change. Now, so a lot of these changes are great, but you get some of the things that you need to cope with uh, along with it. Exactly, but you're still here. Oh yeah, yeah. You're not leaving. No, uh, I live up country now. Um, uh, retired. I spent uh, 34 years in the sugar industry and then 18 years as executive director to the Lionel Restoration Foundation. So basically what you're doing, what you're saying to me is you're no longer planting coconuts, but you're eating them. <laughs> yes, of course I eat them. But <laughs> <laughs> But the point, you've had the, you've had the benefit of, uh, and the perspective of seeing all the change. Oh, yes. Buffalo, Toronto, Winslow, Sarasota, Wichita, Tulsa, Ottawa, Oklahoma, Tampa, Panama, Mattawa, La Paloma, Bangor, Baltimore, Salvador, Amarillo, On second thoughts, let's not go to Camelot. It is a silly place. I've been everywhere, man. Across the desert, spare, man. I breathe the mountain air, man. Travel I've had my share, man. I've been everywhere. I've been to Boston, Charleston, Dayton, Louisiana, Washington, Houston. Every time I come to Maui for the last, well, almost 30 years, there's, uh, there's one place I stop, and, it's, and you have to know how to get there. If you miss the light, you're never going to find it. And even if you make the light, you think you're going to be lost until you come over a hill, and all of a sudden, there it is. It's an amazing restaurant with an amazing proprietor, uh, one of the cutting-edge chefs in the Pacific, not to mention Hawaii, who was one of the original Hawaiian regional cuisine chefs, uh, and her name is Beverly Gannon, and the name of her restaurant, which most of my friends, I have to tell you, when I say, you got to go there, they go, oh, but it's such a long ride. It's like 40 minutes. I said, just go, and here's where you make the turn, and don't miss the turn. And they end up going back like every day. The name of the store is the Haile'i Miley General Store. Beverly Gannon, welcome. Aloha, Peter. You're all, nearly a 30-year anniversary coming up. Oh, my right? gosh. I know. I, you know, I started this when I was 18, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, 30 years, October 14th, uh, 2018, 30 years. Wow. Now, I remember your background because when I was a correspondent for Newsweek, one of the things I covered was music. 
And one of the very first stories I wrote for Newsweek was a feature on Alice Cooper. Yeah. Alice Cooper, uh, in those days, even today, managed by Shep Gordon. Who is the road manager? Well, my husband was the road manager on that. Yes. Um, and the producer and the director and all those crazy things that Alice Cooper did. That was Joe. Now, I met that guy who did all that for Alice Cooper. I was the road manager for Liza Minnelli for one of her, her uh, Liza with a Z tours in 1973. But who's counting? <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> really. But you were also cooking. Well, I started cooking a little later. Yeah. I actually started cooking when we moved to Maui in 1980 when um, you know Joe brought me here for a vacation for a week. We stayed three. We moved. And I was sunning, funning, and started to cook. And I would go to the stores here and find all these crazy ingredients. That you that couldn't find anywhere seen. else. Well, I'd never seen before. I grew up in Texas. I lived in New York City for quite a long time. But I had never seen bok choy or wanbok or aku or, you know, fish. I mean, to be able to see a whole fish and buy a piece of that. So I started cooking, and I started cooking for all of Joe and Shep's friends. Um, and people got to know my food, and then I started a little catering business. The little catering business got big, and uh, in 1988, uh, five minutes from my house, I opened Holy Miley General Store, which was in the middle of nowhere. You had to go through sugar, sugar cane, cane fields, fields. past some like old World War II Quonset huts, and off a two-lane highway that didn't have a left-turn lane, and no cell phones back then, right? right. Where you could call and say, "I'm lost." Um, well, we've come up in stature now where we actually have a marked left turn lane, a big sign in the middle of the highway that's a four lane highway now that says Haliki Miley Road. Um, so we're not as out of the way as we used to be. And, and, and your restaurant really was the general store, wasn't it? It was, it was built in 1929 as the camp store for the Pineapple Company. So you know, it was always servicing the neighborhood, you know, and then we came in and we still service the neighborhood. But then the day we opened, 150 people showed up and wanted to sit down and eat. And I had 30 chairs and I was just a gourmet takeout food shop that everybody was questioning how long it would last because they went, this isn't going to last here. Who's going to come? But people came and people now come from all over the islands and and I run into people when I travel now who, you know, I can be in France or Germany or Italy, and I run into somebody who goes, oh, I've been to the general store. <laughs> yeah. So it's pretty cool. And by the way, not to name drop too many people, but when I walk in, I bump into people I see in Los Angeles, or I bump into people that I see in New York, or Oprah. Oh, absolutely. Oprah yeah. shows up. You know. Yeah. I mean, she she's, you know, from the time she moved here, she's been coming to the restaurant. So... Um, but you know what? They come because it's a unique situation. It's an old store. We kept the feel of the old store. And bottom line is I am always going to make sure that you walk out really happy and have the best meal you can possibly have with the most local ingredients that I can serve you. Um, I mean, we get produce and things from Oprah's Farm, you know, so, uh, and we get, get it from the farm down the street. I have someone who just grows lettuce for me. But you see, now you can source everything. Exactly. Well, yeah, when we, that's why we started Hawaii Regional Cuisine. 
you know, 25, over 25 years ago was because we didn't have anything here and anything that was being grown here was being shipped away. So from that standpoint, what I've seen in 30 years is a dramatic difference in getting fresh product here. I mean, we can get, we get, you know, chickens and pigs and lamb and uh, it's pretty wonderful. If you are continuing on to another Southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. I am a for those of you who've heard the show before, you may have heard my next guest. Uh, in the interest of full disclosure, I actually grew up with this guy on Fire Island. His father was actually the, the local doctor on the island, and then he got smart and left us and moved to Hawaii. Um, we got smart, and I also stayed on Fire Island, so you, we'll figure out who's smarter. But the bottom line is I don't travel without this guy because he is the founder and director of Doctors on Call Urgent Care Clinics right here on Maui, but he's a great travel and tropical doctor. He even makes beach calls. Um, and in fact, we liked him so much when, when we were at NBC, he became our NBC doctor for the Olympics. Uh, but he never really left Maui. And I shall tell you this, his name, of course, is Dr. Norman Eston, but he actually packed for me. He's actually saved me so many times. He packs it in this little Altoids tin. He packs for me an emergency medical travel kit and in that kit is everything I could ever conceivably need in an emergency on the road. The good news is I'm knocking on wood here. I've only had to use it once, but boy, did it help out. Um, I was in New Orleans. I had excruciating pain in my lower right back. Uh, I'm the son of a doctor, so I think I can self-diagnose. Uh, and I actually was right. And uh, he had for me enough. Two, he had two painkillers. That was it. I had two pills for emergencies only. And I used them until I could get to the hospital, and that was when I had a kidney stone. Oh, my God. Ladies and gentlemen, especially for the women out there, guys, if you've ever ha had to pass a kidney stone, trust me, it's about as close as you can get to giving birth. It is not easy. Uh, Norman Eston, thank you for coming. How's it, Brad? Good to see you. Welcome back to Maui. See? I told you he moved to Maui. Uh, what's in my medical kit? Everything you need. We have 12 medicines, starting doses of all the medicines you're going to need when you travel. It's got uh, starting doses of two antibiotics uh, to take care of the common infections you might get exposed to. And as you know, when people travel, sometimes they get an upset stomach, maybe a little dietary indiscretion. We've got medicines for heartburn, cramps, of course, some Terista or Montezuma's Revenge, a little nausea. We got a couple of pain pills. We got a couple of things for allergic reactions. We have an eye ointment. We have something to help you sleep and something to help you if your nerves get too unhinged. And, and we have a little first aid kit in there. We got a couple of band-aids, some first aid ointment, a couple of needles to get slivers out, and we can be supplied with your favorite travel device, a tiny set of tweezers. Wow, and it works. Fantastic, it's all you need. It'll fit in an Altoids tin or a tiny little snack size Ziploc plastic baggie. But in the interest of full disclosure, make sure you get it from your personal physician so you are not violating any laws or prescription rules and force who better to give you that than the person who understands your own personal medical history. Absolutely. And when you're on Maui here, forgetting the little Altoids little kit that you give me, which is, and by the way, that's not a commercial for Altoids. It just happens to be a convenient box. Um, What's the most prevalent problem you're called upon here to deal with? 
for people who are visiting who are on an island? I think it's uh, mostly ear, nose, and sinus problems. People fly with colds. Sometimes when they go up and down in airplanes, the ears and sinuses will get congested. And of course, people are on the water, in the water. They're snorkeling. They're diving. They may have trouble clearing their ears or you know, getting their sinuses unclogged. So it's mostly ear, nose, and throat, but they're easy to take care of. And the most serious stuff you get? Well, we'll see the same thing that happens when people aren't traveling. You know, they can have heart attacks, they can have strokes. Anything that can happen anywhere in the world can happen here. Although, you know, when people are on vacation, the rule book tends to go out the window. They don't take their meds. They're, they're just, they're on vacation. Yeah, it's funny, isn't that? And I'm the same way. It's amazing. We're all like that. Somehow we uh, get rid of some of those uh, controls when we're on vacation and need a break. And we may eat things we don't know or well, we know aren't good for us and maybe drink a little bit too much as well. Okay, now, one of the things that comes up every summer, whether you're on the East Coast or here in, in, in Hawaii, mosquitoes. Absolutely. Now, mosquitoes are a real problem in the world. And in fact, most diseases in the world are probably spread through mosquitoes. And eventually, in a few years, we're probably going to be able to take care of that by uh, a very fascinating development in medicine, which is uh, creating genetically modified mosquitoes that actually are not going to be able to transmit disease. That's a few years off, but it's actually in the pipeline. In the meantime, the most important thing when you travel is to avoid getting bit by mosquitoes. Now, well, he th thank you for that advice. That was the most brilliant thing you've ever said to me. <laughs> So that's, that's like saying avoid getting hit by a bus. Now, there's two ways to do that, as you know. The first thing is to make sure you've got some sort of protection against the physical mosquitoes, and that's some sort of repellent-treated clothing or netting or whatever. But the other is some kind of mosquito repellent, and the best one by far is DEET, D-E-E-T. Okay, and why? Well, one, uh, it's going to work against most mosquitoes. It's going to work against all the mosquitoes that carry the common viruses, which are um, the chikungunya and Zika and dengue, as well as West Nile. Um, it's going to last for a long time. It's not particularly toxic. It's easy to apply uh, and readily available. And if you go swimming, you've got to reapply it. You do have to, If you go swimming, you have to reapply it. But there's a form that it's available in that's exceptionally easy to travel with, and these are little wipes, okay? So... The medicine that has the DEET that's in the single-dose wipes that's available in any pharmacy will last a lot longer than if you use it from a liquid bottle. Plus, you don't have to worry about it spilling or smelling or contamination of your luggage. Okay, so other than packing that, what's one more thing you need to pack? Aspirin. Really? Aspirin. Either aspirin or Tylenol. Common little medicine like that for a headache, a minor ache and pain. You'd be surprised how often you have something like that and you've got to look around for it. You're in a foreign country or something it may be hard to find. You want to take all the medicines with you. It's much easier to take whatever you need, even if it's common like that, rather than trying to find it. Riding along in my automobile My baby beside me at the wheel Cruising and playing the radio my next guest is probably one of the most published underwater photographers in the world. And he began diving and photographing underwater in 1976. He's still conscious. It's unbelievable. And he's, and he's been in Hawaii for the last 31 years. David Fleetham, how are you, man? I'm having a good day. Yeah, well, let's talk about it. When people come to, to Maui, um, you know, Hawaii has a certain aura to it. People want to get in the water. They want to get on the water. They want to get under the water. 
uh, you've seen the changes. You've seen the good, the bad, and sometimes even the ugly. So tell me what's going on. Give me a status report, if you will, about, about underwater here in, in, in Maui. Well, in 30 years, I certainly have seen the number of creatures plummet. Although the reefs here are still hanging in, they're still doing well, but, uh, but definitely there's fewer fish in the ocean than there was here 30 years ago. And When you first jumped in 30 years ago, what did you see? Oh, I, I saw in places I saw just walls of sharks going by and uh, schools of hammerheads and reefs that were really just jam-packed with, uh, with fish. And then? And then shark finning happened, and uh, and long lining, and those those shark numbers just dramatically dropped. We were it was just all because of shark fin soup. All that ridiculous soup, yes. Now, thankfully, I know so many hotels overseas now, especially in Asia, uh, have banned it from their menu. So if there's no demand, the number of sharks being caught drops. Uh, same yeah. thing here. Yeah, yeah. There's all worldwide. There's been a significant change. Just even in, uh, I think UPS does not even allow shark fins to be transported with them now, and uh, and they're trying to get other couriers and airlines on board for that. So, uh, yeah, we're we're working on it. Un- unfortunately, the uh, the numbers of sharks have just dropped so dramatically that uh, that hopefully we can turn it around. How? Uh, by stopping the the killing basically when you go in the water i mean you've 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 gone underwater in indonesia the red sea the galapagos what distinguishes hawaii for you Uh, hawaii i mean has many unique things it's located in the the center of the largest ocean on our planet and the water is so deep at outside the the state the water is very deep maui county luckily has uh shallows in between the islands here which is one of the reasons we get the most humpback whales in whale season come here because of the uh, the protected waters that we have. But uh, Hawaii is just unique because it's so isolated. It took just millions and millions of years for the fish that are here to get here. The uh, fish travel or move about the ocean through currents. It's actually their young that are transported and it's really difficult for them to get to Hawaii. The circle of the Pacific around the Hawaii, uh, the currents rarely get here, and that's how new species get here. Well, there are about 600 species of fish right here on the islands. Yes, yes, there are. And and that, I mean, in comparison, Indonesia has like well over 3,000 species of fish. But the, the unique thing about the species that are here are a huge percentage of them are endemic are found nowhere else in the world. So fish that made it here have evolved and become unique species. So there's fish here that you won't see anywhere else in the world. I want to talk about turtles, because every once in a while when I'm in the water, I see one right on the surface. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And they're sunning. Yes, they're sunning, and they come up for a breath. So so they breathe, and, and Hawaii... I mean, I do get to travel all over the world, and Hawaii is really unique for the the turtle population that's here in that they seem to have grown accustomed to the fact that we're not going to eat them. And uh, and so they're they're very calm around snorkelers and people. You can approach them, although they're still federally protected, so you you can't touch them or harass them. You bring up a very interesting point because in terms of behaviors, 
and the Galapagos, the nurse sharks are friendly. I mean, you, yes. you go right up to them. They don't, they don't startle. They don't attack. They're, they're used to you because they know you're not going to come after them. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Galapagos is an amazing place for that above and below the creatures that are there are, uh, yeah, just virtually ignore people. But of course, what they've had to do there is limit the number of people and the number of boats that can be out there at any one time, specifically to maintain that opportunity to be, have a species maintained. I mean, what's this, what's happening here? Uh, here there's, uh, there's not, I mean, there, there's nobody saying that, uh, that we're going to limit the number of people that come to Hawaii. The opposite is happening really. And so, uh, that's part of the problem is just the numbers of people that, uh, that are in the ocean and. and so, so if you can't control the numbers, you just have to control the education. You have to let people know what they can and can't do. Hello and welcome to Alaska Flight 438. We'd like to tell you now about some important safety features of this aircraft. The most important safety feature we have aboard this plane is the flight attendants. Please look at one now. Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. When I first came to Hawaii, when I was a correspondent for Newsweek back in 1971, I met a garbage collector who had mastered something that most people have never heard about. Even today, most people don't even know about it. Uh, he was the master of the slack key guitar right here in Hawaii. His name was Gabby Pahanui. Uh, sadly, he's passed away, but his tradition lives on. And one of the ways it lives on is through a guy who heard his music, I think, in Colorado uh, before you ever even came to Hawaii. And his name is Barry Flanagan. Uh, it's Nahoku music, isn't it? Actually, that's the name of the local awards. It's like the local Grammys or yeah. the Nahoku Hanohano Awards, which means the glorious star. Right, but you're a slack key guy. Um, I play a version of slack key. Explain slack key. Um, well, the guitars were brought here in the 1850s. Um, uh, they came in with the Spanish vaqueros who were brought in to teach the native Hawaiians how to handle the gift of cattle that was given to Hawaii. And uh, the, the folklore story that everybody seems to agree with is that... Um, after the guitars were left in the hands of the native Hawaiians, they started to retune the guitar to sound like two vaqueros. Ah. So that's why there's the bass going on at the same time. It does have a Spanish flavor to it, doesn't it? Does. it? Yeah. So the bass is alternating, almost like classical music a little bit. And how have you expanded on that? Um, I formed a group called Hapa in 1983, and that was really done thinking not about getting as much of the culture and the music out to the world as a touring group. A lot of it had to do with the language dying. There were less than 20 adolescents that spoke the Hawaiian language in 1983. There's over 26,000 speaking and understanding it today. Do you speak it? I speak a little of it. I speak more Tahitian than I do Hawaiian. How'd, how'd, how'd that happen? Um, I just ended up being befriended by a Tahitian man that moved here when I moved <laughs> here, and I spent more time in his house, and he spoke to me more in 
Tahitian than Hawaiian, so. But part of your music is also to try to pre preserve the culture. Without a doubt, the language, that's uh, that very first CD of ours. We were selling more local CDs here in Hawaii in 1992 to about 97, uh, with a million people here than Texas was with 28 million people. So there was a big, big music scene and CD scene here when we released our stuff. And there's a Kenny Loggins connection. There's a big Kenny Loggins connection. He sings in Hawaiian on uh, the first record, which was really a lot of fun and really helped the record sell, obviously. Right, but you were also nominated for, for a Grammy for what? Mm -hmm. For the first song uh, in the Hawaiian language with him, from more songs from Pooh Corner. It's been all about the language with me. That very first CD gave uh, about $8,000 to Punanaleo, which is our Hawaiian immersion school, which is one of the reasons why the language came back. And is there a song you can play for me right now that, that, that basically exemplifies that? Well, it's so funny because I came in tuned to Gabby's. I didn't know you had you never Gabby. knew I was going to say that, did so you? So I was going to play one song by me. But uh, it was Gabby's music with Ry Cooter that was the hook for me. Ry Cooter, uh, the award-winning American filmmaker, Buena Vista Social Club, uh, recorded with Gabby. I don't know if you know that. You must. I, you know what? I know it now because yeah, you just told he me. he did. So he was on a record called The Best of the Gabby Band and also produced a record of Gabby's two sons after he passed away. But uh, Gabby played on... Uh, his record, and he named it Chicken Skin Music. You know what Chicken Skin is because you've been here. That's like your goose flesh when you hear something good. So Rye released a record with Gabby on it. And this is very, um, this is very typical. This is Gabby. It's really funny you said that, but this is Gabby's sound. Nice. <laughs> I like the last note. That's it, that, thanks. That's his. Uh, that's what I mean about my own version of Slack Key. I do more Jeff Beck meets Slack Key. <laughs> I do a lot of tricks when I play Slack Key music, and it's not traditional. So the traditionalists go like this. You know, I, they, in all the years doing this show, I never heard about Jeff Beck meeting Slack Key. You know, every guitar player is a, is an amalgam. You know, is a tapestry. It's all derivative in some ways. Totally. So I mean, yeah. I bend my neck. I do. I do tricks when I play Slack Key, which is do, not do that. Oh, do that again. Oh. Just funny thing. That's it. It's not having toys, I guess, when I was younger. You know, I just had a guitar in my hand. So I just learned how to do a lot of different tricks. But when tourists visit Hawaii, mm -hmm. they're looking for traditional luau music. They're looking, you know, it, it's, it's, it's tough to get them into this. But once they get into it, they love it. Oh, without a doubt, it becomes a soundtrack. Uh, I think once they once they kind of get used to it our stuff I mean Kenny Loggins sang on the first record Stephen Stills played on the first record so it had that appeal it was very pop orientated Hawaiian CD right and that's how you can get people into it totally where are you playing now uh, right now I'm on break for about three months and uh, there's a place in Kihei that we're trying to get going for for live music called Nalus it's called N-A-L-U-S over in Kihei on the south side so I'm doing a dinner show over there on Fridays I live in Honolulu so I fly over here for that oh a commuter a commuter you would love that <laughs> yeah right you have a much shorter commute than I do I know I have how many miles I'm jealous is there one song among all the other songs that exemplifies what we're talking about that one that I just played, Hi'ilabe, is that's basically known as Gabby's theme song. 
And that strum is that backyard strum. I mean, Gabby, that st story about him uh, being the garbage collector, I actually knew an, an elderly woman that's very well respected in Hawaiian culture, uh, Auntie Lydia Maioho, and Gabby used to stay at her house and used to get woke up at 4.30 in the morning by the garbage trucks. <laughs> and he'd be running down the street, jumping on the back of the truck and waving goodbye to her. It really brought back memories because I'd forgotten about that story. Who's teaching that today? Who's teaching Slecky? Yeah. Um, you know, it's one of those things that uh, I don't really think you can go anywhere to learn it. But all of the guys, the masters, George Kuo, um, I could name probably five, Keola Beamer. Any, I'm sure any time they're asked... They're asked by anyone. They teach one-on-one. -on -one. I don't really hear too much about classes, but I may be wrong. You could always Google Slacky classes. Is that the answer to everything, Google? <laughs> Google it and see. <laughs> Come fly with me. Let's fly. Let's fly away. If you can use some exotic booze, there's a bar in far Bombay. Come on and fly with me. Let's fly. Let's fly away. Come fly with me, let's float down It's a theme Peru. we've talked about on the show before from other distant locations around the world, but it's no less important here in Maui. And that is, I don't think it's arguable whether or not Maui is beautiful, it is. Whether it's special, it is. Whether it's luscious and green, it is. Whether it's an amazing place to come and visit and work and live on all three levels, it is. But the question that is now being asked in Maui and many places around the world that are so popular is, is it possible to be loved too much? Can it be over-touristed? And joining me now, the executive director of a, of a nonprofit group called Maui Tomorrow, Albert Perez. How are you, sir? Good morning. Aloha. And aloha. So you heard my introduction and you heard my question. Mm -hmm. Is there an answer? Can it be loved too much? Oh, absolutely. I think that's being proven around the world in many cities as you probably know better than I do. I've only seen what I've seen here and in a couple of cities, but uh, clearly we're not managing our resources, um, which are the most important part of, of what makes our tourist industry possible. And in a way, you, ha you have a challenge uh, both from the private sector and the government and from the visitors. So it's, a, it's actually a three-part challenge to first educate and then implement. And How's that going? Well, it's been a challenge. We've been trying to educate uh, since 1989 when we started. And the reason we got... Because you saw it back then. You saw we it did. starting. We did. So our predecessor was a group called State Park at McKenna. And if you've been down to McKenna, there's a place called Big Beach. That was supposed to be developed into condos. So now instead, as a result of citizen action, we have a 300-acre state park and it's been preserved. So so you, you're winning a few battles. We win occasionally. We've won some really big battles. I mean, I, you know, I go back to the idea that if, if, econ if the economic engine here is driven by tourism, you're sort of fighting an uphill battle because without that, that influx of, of money and resource and growth and structure, you don't have an economy. So you're always fighting that battle with people saying, but wait, if we build this you know, new 300-room hotel, we're going to provide all these jobs. But there's a flip side of that story, isn't there? Absolutely. But that's one of the reasons why we've always encouraged diversification. And back in, I would say, 1990, we were calling for a hotel moratorium because tourism was the drug that cured the ailing agricultural economy back then. And it helped. It really helped. No doubt about it. Right. 
So it, it helped Maui to recover from this downhill slide that it was in. But the drug uh, became an addiction, and so it's just been too much. But you never got the moratorium. There actually was a six-month hotel moratorium. <laughs> well, what does that mean? <laughs> Not much in the context of 20, 30 years. Right. But what happened during that six months? I mean, was there any, could they actually see a change, or, or it was just sort of like meaningless? I don't think it had any meaning because it, you know, this was just granting new permits. So uh, there were already things under construction, and anyway, six months is not very long. All right, so what, you know, can you be an optimist in your job? Can you actually see, yes, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. We can actually make a change? Absolutely. I think the change is already occurring. And, you know, I've been talking about it for a long time, but just recently I came across a hashtag uh, called Overtourism. And so I did a little research on that. And there's an organization called the Responsible Tourism Partnership. Are you familiar with that? I'm not sure. I'm about to be. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, and there are lots of cities around the world that are members of this. Um, and their objective is to use tourism to make places better to live in and visit. So you're preserving what's special that makes people want to come without destroying it. And you've been here how long? I've been here uh, off and on. I grew up on Oahu. So, so you're, you're more or less a local guy. I mean, I'm pretty much a local guy. I have lived elsewhere. Well, look, let's take a look at Oahu for a second because that's the most populated it's the one that was developed first. It was, it was the original gateway city when United Airlines started flying here and everybody else started coming in. You saw all those changes. What lessons can you learn from that that you can apply here? Um, that we should look at Oahu and, and see what can happen. Everybody here that I talk to says we don't want to become like Oahu, but the decisions that our government keeps making are permitting new things, uh, and there's just a lot of development that's happening. Now, to be fair, you're not opposed to growth. You just want to make it sensible growth. I think that, uh, you know, we have to grow, but we don't definitely have to encourage excess of growth, which is what I think we're doing. I mean, when you first came here, traffic wasn't that bad. Traffic? There yeah. wasn't even a traffic light in Paia. And now? There's a traffic light, and there's miles of traffic going into Paia. So here's the deal for, for those people listening to the show who are thinking of coming to Maui. Get involved. Be a part of the solution. You have a website? We do. It's Maui-Tomorrow.org. Where are the wagons? The wagon is too slow. Can't you ride? It's not that he can't ride. How is it you put it home? They're dangerous at both ends and crafty in the middle. Why would I want anything with a mind of its own bobbing about between my legs? When you think about the traditional products of Hawaii, it almost gets into like a stereotypical image of sugarcane or pineapple or let's go wild macadamia nuts. Um, and then there's coffee. Well, sugarcane is down. Pineapple is no longer really being grown here. It's been basically outsourced to the Philippines. They closed the sugarcane mills. Uh, that leaves macadamia nuts and coffee. And my next guest knows a little bit about both, but he really knows about the coffee. It's James Kimo Falcon. He's the president of Maui Grown Coffee Distributors. He's a fifth generation line of resident. That's saying something right there. Kimo, when people talk about Kona coffee, I mean, there's a certain myth to it. There's a certain romance to it. 
but it goes back how many years? Uh, Kona coffee has been around for, I mean, 150 years or more. Um, but we're growing coffee here in Maui. So Maui makes a different distinction. It's a different origin other than Kona. So there's a little bit difference between the two. But uh, that's when coffee actually started was in Kona. Well, is it the altitude? Is it the, uh, is it the humidity? It's all of them. Um, it's the varieties. Um, we grow coffee at a lower elevation. Uh, Kona is more uh, traditionally higher, a um, little more rainfall, higher in the clouds, soil type. It's actually a lot of differences, actually. So we're talking about big difference between that and, say, what we grow here. You came to work in the sugar industry. That's correct. I worked in the sugar industry almost 20 years as the agronomist for um, a Piner Mill Sugar Company here in Lahaina. Uh, that's, that's the mill they closed. That's one of them. I mean, they just closed the last one here in Hawaii just uh, earlier this year. The last sugar plantation shut down in January of this year. So, um, yeah, so I started doing that. And then ag research that took me into coffee where I started doing some uh, t trials uh, in co uh, concert with the uh, University of Hawaii. Uh, and uh, that's how it all began. We started growing out different varieties here. So you entered it from a scientific perspective. Absolutely, yeah. So um, we got the green light from... Uh, you know, the ivory tower of uh, Amfac at the time, who was the owner of the uh, of the, the old sugar plantations, um, and did a lot of work with it, and here we are today. Was, ended up planting about 500 acres, and uh, the story got pretty interesting along the way there. So, It's a sustainable crop. It is actually quite, a, quite sustainable. I think, you know, uh, if you look at everybody always complains, you turn around left, right, here's a Starbucks, right? So... Uh, emerging economies. Uh, well, it's got to be a little bit ironic that you're growing coffee here and there's a Starbucks. <laughs> there's a Starbucks everywhere you look. Um, They're not buying their coffee from you. Uh, no, I have had. Uh, I, I used to I, star. They have a program called the Star Reserve Program. If you go to Seattle, they have this amazing store there that's uh, based on all these private store uh, farms all over the all over the world, and they feature just these special coffees. And we were one of those coffees. We were the very one of the first twelve. Uh, farms to be in that program. So you can actually go into a Starbucks in Maui and and get your coffee. That's a trick now. So it's like to get a Star Reserve, you have to go to a Star Reserve store and they don't have one in the entire state of Hawaii. So basically, if you're going to get your coffee here, you don't go to Starbucks. You just get it and go home. Yeah, you just go. To our, we can go to our store. You can anything that says Maui on this on the bag itself, even if it's in uh, uh, Whole Foods or if it's in uh, Costco that came from our farm. But is that like the Champagne region in France? You can only say Champagne if you're in France. That's correct, and some to some degree, right? Um, to say the word Maui, it has to have certain certain amount of Maui coffee, and it has to be uh, meet certain standards to to have that word on there. Are you guys doing tours? We were doing tours. Um, what happened? Was there an incident? Well, we're, there's an insect that. Uh, that started over in Kona. It's actually a worldwide coffee insect, and it uh, showed up in uh, Kona about uh, 2010. We don't have it at our farm yet, but it is on Maui, and so we're trying to stop the spread of it. It's going to happen at some point, but um, just be, the fact that it moves by hitchhiking, that's how it jumps on people's uh, clothing or, you know, on, on bags or whatever it is, tractors. Uh, that's how it moves around. So basically, go by the coffee, but don't come see you. Yeah, well, yeah, we got a place that's three miles away you can go to and enjoy, enjoy our coffee at the store. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world.
Hey, Prime members, Peter Greenberg here. You can listen to Ion Travel ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today, and you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. And before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com. If you travel for work, you know to pack two suits, business and swim. You know with your Delta Sky Miles Business Amex card, buying that plane ticket for a business trip can get you closer to medallion status. You know that a meeting in Montana means visiting almost every national park. Yellowstone? Check. Because you're the chief excursion officer. It's why you're a Delta SkyMiles Platinum Business American Express card member. If you travel, you know. Terms apply. Visit go.amex slash you know business. If you're listening to this podcast, then chances are good you are a fan of The Strange, Dark, and Mysterious. And if that's true, then you're in luck. Because, once again, Mr. Ballin' Podcast, Strange, Dark, and Mysterious Stories is available everywhere you get your podcasts. Each week on the Mr. Ballin' Podcast, you'll hear new stories about inexplicable encounters, shocking disappearances, true crime cases, and everything in between. Like our recent episode titled White Dust. After a middle-aged couple fail to answer their daughter's messages and calls, the daughter drives the few hours to her parents' house to check on them, but after arriving and seeing both her parents' cars in the driveway, the daughter gets an uneasy feeling and just can't stomach going inside. To hear the rest of that story and hear hundreds more stories like it, follow Mr. Ballin Podcast on Amazon Music or wherever you get your podcasts. Prime members can listen early and ad-free on Amazon Music.